0: Welcome back, all you weirdos, Crocoans, and everyone who's ever been tossed off the Brooklyn Bridge and almost saved, but not quite. It is time for another Weird Dose of X. I'm Jason, and I am here again with my man Ruben. How are you, Ruben?
1: Hey, I'm uh, drowning in rivers of pee as for potty training oh. another kid, which is a blast. Oh. And I have a sense joy, that my joy. judgment is getting a big thumbs down right now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll, you'll get through that just like we'll get through some of these issues that maybe maybe there's a little potty training needed to be done in these issues too. My, my news of the week is that if you've been following my saga on the Marvel podcast, I've had you know <clears throat> a lot of throat clearing issues. I try to mute them all out if I can so that Jim doesn't have to edit them, but I had a CAT scan done and it turns out, Ruben, I've got some bad news. I may be in trouble. My septum is excessively deviated. so <laughs> I don't know what that is, <laughs> but it doesn't sound good. Well, it, it, it's <laughs> a de- deviated septum. It's like the, I, I snore and maybe that's why my throat's all clogged. But anyway, I'm worrying if there's going to be like Icarus flying up my nose with a scalpel or something because as we all know, excessive deviation cannot be tolerated. We don't have any deviance in these three books this week. Uh, and before we get to those, we're going to talk about an upcoming event, Sins of Sinister, we have a little tiny bit more news about. Uh We'll get most of the news, I think, coming out October 8th, which is, you know, less than a week from now. There's a panel at the New York Comic Con where, I don't know, maybe we'll find out who the writer is at least, but we do see, it seems to be another, maybe it's Age of Apocalypse, maybe it's tied to the Moira clones, hard to tell. We have a graphic with lots of Weird versions of characters, and I sure hope to gosh it's not another, let's have 18 more versions in the multiverse of every character like yeah. we've had in Miles, and Avengers, and in
1: Spider-Verse, because we don't need that again. And House of M. Yeah. The left, When we heard the name of this event, I was excited. I'm a big Sinister fan, especially the current version of him. And then when we got the little bit of a description of what this event might be about, where it sounded like a world's Inspired or directed by choices that Sinister's made, I just kind of groaned because it totally feels like just House of M or um, Age of Apocalypse. We've done this twice already. Like, do we really need the same story from the Sinister point of view? We had Age of x man too at the end of uh, Immediately Prequel. Oh, yeah, correct. Yeah. Yeah. So this is (laughs) the fourth time's a charm. I don't think anyone's ever said that. (laughs) Well, it's maybe, maybe it'll be different. I know, I know that's what everyone says. Maybe it'll be different
0: this time, but think uh, there's some cool looking characters. I think we have some of the chimera that look or the chimera that uh we saw in Powers of Tens. We haven't seen those characters in a long, long time. There's a a Thor or Odin looking character with a a triangle with an arrow coming out of it. It looks almost like an electronic symbol on his chest. We do have Captain America with a diamond on his forehead. I, I could do without that.
1: I think my problem with this is these ter- these sorts of stories very rarely have lasting effect. And so I guess they can be sort of fun, but I'm skeptical. Could be. I mean, I'm starting to think,
0: my brain keeps trying to find, okay, are we coming to the end of the Krakoan era? We see like uh, in Judgment Day, we've seen that the resurrection protocols have been twisted around to and revealed to, oh, we can bring back Captain America. So is that signaling an end? Is this book signaling some kind of an end? I don't know. I mean, this uh, Krokoan era can't go on forever. They've really... Know, you know, messed up their toys to some extent. There's got to be some kind of a reset sometime not too far in the future, I would think, but I'm not a Marvel editor, God knows. So we will find out more October 8th. I really think that finding out who the lead writer on this is going to change my my feelings about it pretty drastically because of all the the class of ex-writers. Now, assuming it is one of our main ex-writers, I don't think they're bringing in somebody from the outside with this, but who knows? Uh there's some of them I really like, there's some of them I kinda like, and there's some of them I would go, oh oh no. So you're holding out for Steve Orlando? Steve Orlando, <laughs> Timmy <TV> Howard event? <laughs> I'll, I'll use my uh my empty coffee can to make the Orlando Zone sound effects. Uh well, that is Sins of Sinister. That's all we know for now. We have we could we can speculate all we want, but next week we should know more about that. On to the actual books this week. We have three books well, two books of Judgment Day to talk about. And one other book we want to mention a little bit, the two Judgment Day books are Axe Avengers, number one. One of those three were told story vital stories by, uh, or or plot vital stories by uh, our own head of Axe, Kieran Gillen. We have Amazing Spider-Man, number 10. And then we'll talk a little bit about X-Men number 15, which doesn't have the Judgment Day trade dress on the cover and and seems to be happening after the event. So we'll get some information about that. And sadly,
1: that's the one I'm most excited to talk about.
0: <laughs> I mean, I don't know how anything had happened after the event, because everybody's dead, aren't they? So we're gonna start off with Axe Avengers, written by Kieran Gillen, art by Federico Vicentini. Uh and this has this is the one with Tony Stark on the cover, and I gotta gloat a tiny little bit. I made a pretty obvious prediction that came right, but I'm gonna take credit anyway. It does seem like these one shots, Avengers X Men Eternals, by Gillen are going to be the story of this strike team within the progenitor. At least this first one certainly is. So we have a small cast here. We have just the progenitor. And inside the progenitor, we have from the Avengers, Iron Man. From the X-Men, Jean Grey, Wolverine, and Mr. Sinister. And from the Eternals, Ajax, Cersei, and Makari. And I think this first page actually is really cool. This is, I think, the best art in the book. This opening splash uh, where we see the progenitor from the outside. We've seen versions of this, this same scene in so many books, but I think this might be my favorite. Uh, it has some, some nice, like, almost dim pastel kind of co- colors. There's swirling snow and lightning and he's holding a staff that we've seen before, but this staff here looks otherworldly in a, a different kind of way. And you can really see the, the Frankenstein nature of the different pieces of this progenitor that have been you know shoved together by our, uh, our god makers. And we hear that, uh, well, first off, Tony's feeling a little lonely because he's the only <clears throat> actual Avenger here, current Avenger. But, you know, uh, Cersei and Wolverine remind him, you know, we've been Avengers in the past too, so don't feel too bad. Sinister, of course, doesn't feel bad about anything. He makes some joke about wanting Thor's cloak because Thor's dead. Now, does, does Thor have a cloak? I don't really think of Thor as a cloak guy, but Sinister loves those cloaks. So we still have that same, they're calling it a destruct node now, that little... Off button that they want to blow up like it's a Death Star, and they need to find their way there. But the path may be warped by this god's new power. Uh, and we also get a moment of Jean saying that she's the only one being keeping them from being crushed right now because she's using her her vast psychic powers. Which really reminds me of uh, Xavier at the Quiet Council when he's all cranky because oh you sure we're chatting here, but I'm I'm fighting eighteen people in my head right now. Okay, Jean, you're you're important too. That's fine. We don't see her doing any of this, but we were just told that, oh, by the way, if she weren't doing whatever she's doing, they'd all be dead 13 times a second.
1: I just like to imagine that she's just a vicious liar, like she's doing nothing and she just has to (laughs) make herself sound impressive. Could be, could be. I I certainly would if I had that option. So they're going to find their
0: way to this special node, but on the way, they are inside the body of the Celestial, so of course, they get attacked by the antibodies. And these antibodies don't look great. They're kinda your your standard squiggly monsters with nasty teeth. Uh Sinister says he can take care of them because he has some experience with them back from the uh Kieran Gill and Uncanny X-Men Volume Two when he, he uh you know was messing with the dreaming celestial, I think.
1: I don't remember these being in there in that sort of little story either, which is interesting. I mean that that story basically starts with like, oh he just kind of accessed it and the heroes show up. Right. We don't we don't see him take over the celestial we just see the, the
0: effects of that. We see him having control of the Celestial in that story. Anyway, it doesn't work. And they have kind of a fight and flirting. And, and Jean flirts with Tony. And I mean, isn't she already kind of busy with Wolverine and Cyclops? And I don't know if there's another room up there in, on, the, on their house in the moon. They've got a 4 pole going. No one, no one wants that.
1: She's got enough time to fight <laughs> <guess>. all these <laughs> psychic battles and also <laughs> carry on all these relationships. <laughs> so we get some new beasties
0: that look like just your generic uh, hexagons. Maybe they're platelets. They go attack Tony. They st- seem to maybe strangle him or suffocate him. But we end up in a Tony Stark of the mind sequence where we s- we revisit all of Tony's past losses. We see uh, his first Iron Man suit. We see Ho Yinsen, who. Uh, died helping Tony escape back in his origin story. We see his parents die in a crash. We see uh, Captain America dead. We see uh, dead Thor, which is, I think, a reference to Civil War when Tony made a clone of Thor. So maybe this is the dead, I, I don't know. It's it's kind of generic. It seems designed to fill the book without actually going anywhere. I mean, we, we know Tony Stark has demons. There's There's no, I don't think we see a reference to him drinking, which is the only blessed thing they've omitted here, but we see everything else about Tony Stark and at the end, he sees his daddy, who I'm not sure what retcon we're on here, but they must be his dad because they have the same mustache and this is both the progenitor and the antibodies and his dad and as his dad, he says, I'm sorry, son, and you're you're a good guy And, and then we're out of the Of The Mind sequence. So, did this did this tug at your heartstrings, or is your heart cold and, and, and lonely like mine?
1: No, and I'm I'm usually a big sucker for father, son, anything. But uh, My wife loves to laugh at me, because anytime I see something like this in a movie, I'll just start crying. <laughs> that, that does happen when you become a parent. Yeah, it does. But yeah, it always gets it me. Hit different. <laughs> Anyways, but yeah, the way this all plays out, it's just too padded, like you said. I feel like this, if they really had a more complex story to tell this could have been a page of you know him in the center and then you have like a vignette of you know all these scenes and that's one page
0: yeah that could have been like a, a double page splash with him in the middle and all these things around that would have been perfectly fine if you had something else to accomplish in this issue
1: but instead it's like six pages which is like half the third quarter of the book
0: yeah and in, in this vision uh, Tony does get a thumbs up from the progenitor. Which again is super strange. This is Kieran Gillen, so we can't say he doesn't know how this works because it's his book, it's his event. But why would Tony Stark pass when we see he's this conflicted? He doesn't think he's good enough. And every other time in the past when we had a hero like that, like like Captain America, they get the thumbs down. Daredevil. Uh, and why would the Celestial give a pass to the guy who is currently inside his own body attempting to kill him? I think anyone's going to get the, the the double thumbs down. It would be the people currently trying to murder the Celestial to death.
1: The only answer, I think, is is the statement, the conclusion that Tony draws, which is like, hey, we're still being judged, you know, that, that the judgment was not the complete judgment that the progenitor was rendering. And that's honestly, to me, disappointing. That almost feels like the um, kumbaya solution to this event, which they already you know, pointed out was a bad way to resolve an event. So, yeah, they seem to take it off the table with the uh the star fox speech that
0: failed, but i hope I hope we don't get end up with is it a, a better better Kumbaya speech to be the victory that would that would seem like cheating after they went so far to 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 say, "Yeah, we're not doing that this time,
1: yeah, but at the end, we have Tony basically talking to the team saying it was testing me, and if it's still testing me, it's still testing us, and if it's still testing us, we're going to pass and save everyone. I'm like great." So the the remaining what fifteen issues I don't actually know how many issues there are are just going to be people passing tests. Well, we do have a few weeks before
0: our next main event issue, so there's going to be a lot of tie-ins, and yeah, I think I think that's what we're going to get. We're going to get a lot of who is who is your judgment, who is your version of the progenitor, and then a lot of reflecting on the high points of that character's past. And I think they're mostly going to get a thumbs up, but we'll see. I thought the art in this story was was really quite good. I like the expressions. We saw, again, the two mustaches are just maybe a little bit too alike, but you know, they're supposed to look like father and son, so I'm good with that. Uh, Tony start going through the anguish of all those people from his past popping up that they sold the emotions. Even if I wasn't feeling the emotion, I could buy that Tony was feeling the emotion.
1: So that's fine. This might matter more to somebody who's a Parkour Iron Man fan. I probably got one of these <laughs> flashbacks. I, I didn't know who these people were and you know, I, I roughly know his story, but not to a point where, like, each one of these pages matters to me.
0: Mm-hmm. So, I did add Tony to my judgment list uh, spreadsheet in the uh, the past column. He got the thumbs up. Uh, so, the next one in this series is going to be... Oh.
1: I want to. I want to rate this one. I know you. I know you want to avoid that, but I'm going to just give this a straight six.
0: Yeah, I think. Uh, I think that's probably about right. A, a, a six is fine. It's not horrible, but it's definitely not essential. We're told this is an essential part of this event, and no, it isn't. Because I mean, these these three books were announced pretty late, so it's hard to see. Like, even then, you could tell. Well, if, if they weren't part of the event originally, how essential could they be? And the answer is not very. So yeah. Six out of 10 is probably a good number. That is Axe Avengers number one of one by Kieran Gillen. Our next book is going to be The Amazing Spider-Man number 10, written by Zeb Wells, art by Nick Dragata, who uh, he was an artist on a number of Hickman books. I, I kind of like the art in here. It's, it's a very different look. He was an artist on Hickman's East of West at Image. He also did FF with Hickman here at Marvel. From what I can tell, this may be uh, Dragata's first like real Spider-Man comic. So, hey, let's start talking about the art. What did you think of uh, the look of, of Peter and everybody else in this issue?
1: It's very stylized, but you know, I tend to be interested in the stylized looks. I enjoy that. as a, uh, I don't need my comics to look like photorealistic, and actually I think they look better when they don't. So, I thought it was good. The emotions are clear on the faces. The faces are all distinct, right? Like, you know who people are. They're not carbon copies of each other uh it took a
0: little bit for me to get used to peter parker looking so different than what i'm used to uh he he has a lot of lot of big wide eyes in this
1: yeah it's a bit of an anime look
0: very manga inspired wide eyes and even even just a lot of people being surprised and going oh their eyes always getting open 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 every page somebody's getting surprised by something a big forehead kind of stuff but yeah it once i kind of said okay this is what this book looks like i i really enjoyed it so definite uh plus for the art and so this is another one, it's very much like the Avengers story we talked about last time, where it doesn't really have, it, it seems like these writers were told, write a story that tugs at the heartstrings, write a story that has someone acting as the progenitor, being doing the judging, who is known to the character, and don't actually make your book have any effect on anything, because we we're not going to read it. We want it to happen. We want people to read it and feel like, oh, that was important. But we don't want – we don't have to want to worry about any of the details here. We don't want you screwing anything up that we're going to have to reference at all in any other book. And yeah, you probably shouldn't make it important for your book either because as much as I kind of like this book, and I liked it more than the Avengers tie-in, Avengers number 60, I guess it was, it's its not essential to the story. What we have here is uh, – I, I like this this first page where they do – you have to get your readers to know what the event is right because maybe somebody's reading Spider-Man not reading the event has to know what the heck is going on and we get these newscasters talking on TV and i think this was maybe my favorite part of the whole book it reminded me almost of uh the newscasters on frank miller's dark knight where they're kind of sarcastic and they're they're uncomfortable and you can see them kind of cracking their facades and these newscasters are worried about oh are we're reporting the news that's that's a good thing to do right that would be a a morally positive thing, or at worst, morally neutral, and the other one says, "Oh, I don't know. We're kind of exploitive, and we take ad money." And the other says, "Ah, oh, shut up, shut up. We're we're being judged right now." So they give the the very quick skinny on that, and and that was fun. So we know what's going on. This is a version of that where New York is mostly pretty calm, right? We've we've seen it and depending on what book you're in. Either New York is a flaming inferno, riding mess, or it's you know. Another Thursday. It's a big city. <laughs> What's on the back back page of the post this week? How are the next net Knicks doing? How are the Mets doing? Oh, those Mets. Anyway, that's not that's that's the judgment on me is going to be a uh, Mookie Wilson judging me from the corner. So Spider Man's going to be judged, and he talks to Tony and says, "Hey, is is this a real thing?" And Tony says, uh, "Yeah, it's a real thing." And we found the reason he's calling is because Spider Man sees who will be judging him, and. And who who is judging
1: him, Ruben? Gwen Stacy. I did know that. I was proud to recognize that character. Um the only thing about all this that sort of irks me a little bit is we had the Exodus scene in was it Acts four or five where um or maybe I don't know, maybe it wasn't even Acts, but in any event where, where people were in on the judgment, right? They Oh, I know it was it was immortal, right? It was immortal with Sebastian Shaw and Oh, you're talking about the uh, the Exodus one where
0: other people could see it and then there was a big fight and they could actually fight the thing yes
1: yeah and so here we get all these characters being judged and the judging character is invisible right and just kind right. of a only being seen by the
0: person they're judging yeah. which isn't even the same as was in Avengers because that black widow made sure to look like black widow and, and that black widow was chatting she probably ordered food too right well she said i'm going to eat some of your, your your fries and your cheeseburger And how how much she loved having a physical body to do that kind of stuff with, where, yeah, she wanted to blend in in the diner where Gwen here is only showing up to Peter. And I mean, you can say, hey, it's a progenitor, it's a celestial, it can do different things to different people because it has, you know, celestials work in mysterious ways. That's, That's fine, but not so satisfying.
1: No, it's not satisfying. The one thing I found interesting artistically here is we have the glowing eye on Gwen, right? But halfway through, it goes away, and then it's just normal, and then it goes back to glowing, and then there's kind of the surprise ending at the end. But even within this issue, we get both, which I thought, okay, well, is that showing us that that just can be the way it is? Because we right. have I questions, I was trying right. to
0: figure out if that was important. Was something changing that was making it sometimes glow, sometimes not glow? But I think it was just an artistic choice. Like on this first blast page, you want to emphasize just how weird and not really Gwen Stacy this is. So you give her that very stiff pose with the, the thumb out sideways and the very glowing eye just to emphasize the alien nature of her. So then we see Peter kind of going about his day. And again, all these people seem to be having a very normal day. Like Randy needs to get his, needs to pick out a tuxedo for his wedding with Janice. Uh, he goes to visit Aunt May. And all, all these things, Gwen continues to just creepily stare at him the whole time. Uh, the, Aunt May, the Aunt May scene was kind of kind of touching, too, because uh, they chat, and we don't see any hint of the awkwardness that's been between Peter and Aunt May earlier in the book.
1: Yeah, that part was weird to me, too, As I thought, was it the first issue of, of the Zeb Wills run, where she basically was like, you're a jerk now? <laughs> and
0: like, yeah, unreliable. You always yeah. say you're going to do a thing, and you don't. And they kind of resolved some of that in a recent issue where he did show up for dinner, and they seemed to get along better, but... Now they seem like they've never had any problem in this issue. I think they really want this issue to seem standalone. They don't want to refer to much stuff. Although, I mean, Randy getting married to Janice is something happening in the run, so that does tie in. But we see them saying nice things to each other, and it is touching at the end that Peter doesn't see, but we see that Aunt May's progenitor judge is is her husband, is Uncle Ben. Which is touching, but again, if you think about it a little harder, is he judging her? I mean I it's Is he not judged her yet? Because he's still sticking around, being very supportive, it seems. I mean, of course Aunt May is going to get a thumbs up. Oh, my God. Who would give Aunt (laughs) May a thumbs down? People would riot, burn down Marvel. Yeah, I would totally do it just to (laughs) troll the fans. So, again, it's another thing. The progenitor is doing something very different for Aunt May. We don't know what it is. It's the progenitor. It does weird things. It doesn't seem consistent with anything else we see. But what are you going to do? And then Peter goes to visit uh, JJ, who is very funny here. I think I'm talking to myself and liking this a little more as we go on. Just scene by scene, I find things to like. He is he is so scared of being judged. He doesn't seem to have some a, an apparition yet, at least as far as we can tell. We don't see one, but he's thinking about it back and all the crappy things he's done as as a boss, as mayor, to Spider Man, and and Peter forgives him. I mean, he doesn't seem to. It's not even sarcastic, right? He's like, "Oh sure, and I forgive you." No, know, he actually actually seems to forgive him for doing these horrible things and Jonah is surprised and touched
1: yeah mm-hmm. i thought this was a really good bit of dialogue um because he pretty much is like hey you you did all those things from a good place right i don't think the choices were sound but your heart was always you know headed in the right place and if you know in those times you actually hurt me i forgive you which is totally something peter would say right the, not and then the bad next peter. reaction panel
0: of of Jonah accepting that forgiveness is, is really nice. And then, of course, he turns to Joan again and says, hey, can you say that a little louder and shout it towards the North Pole? That's fun, too. And then we go up on the roof, and Gwen follows him. And now he's hanging out. He wants to talk to his clone, Ben. And Ben doesn't show up because he's busy getting ready for the dark web crossover event, storyline, whatever you want to call it. Now he's he's Chasm now, so he can't show up in this event. Uh, Chasm. <laughs> So I don't know that we needed that particular scene. Uh, then we go, we check in with Miles and Miles is uh, just arrested a thug named Rocket Racer who is, that's a pretty
1: deep pull. Uh, are you familiar with Rocket Racer? I am not. And I also <laughs> I, I also just don't understand the Miles outfit. I understand at some point he changed into this new one, but the old outfit looks so a cool. A character he met who was a,
0: uh, a fashion designer kid and that's- this to look like like streetwear fashion. I guess I'm I'm too
1: old to get it. It just looks like a hockey jersey in my mind. And I'm sure you guys have already talked about how bad this new outfit is. But I just think of him getting like really really sweaty wearing that thing. It just looks the <laughs> turtleneck. Like why would you want a turtleneck? But I guess if you're wearing spandex, you're already just gushing. And that was a lovely thought. But uh, <laughs> I did look up
0: Rocket Racer because I was curious to who this guy is. He has a jet powered skateboard. He's very very poochy. Uh, he was part of the 50-state initiative, which was after Civil War. They wanted all these superhero teams around the country, so he was trying to go straight and be a superhero. His last appearance was in a 2018 Marvel Christmas-themed one-shot called Season's Beatings. So if you want to see more Rocket Racer, look up Season's Beatings. Uh, no one's no one's going to do that. But, you know, I guess if he's checking in with all all the people in his life, you got to have a little little miles time. Uh, And then he goes home and goes to bed, and Gwen just stares at him super, super creepy the whole time. But I guess he falls asleep, maybe. Uh, He wakes up, and he's going to call in sick to work. He's going to lie and call in sick to work. This is his Osborne work, not his uh, photography work. And he changes his mind when he sees the, uh, the face of his judgment staring at him. And this is where her eye stops glowing, and I was wondering... If that means
1: anything but I, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't know it's just so it's so obvious that it's changed and I almost wonder if maybe this is a timestamp. I'm starting to think unfortunately that these judgments are arbitrary and we're never going to get an answer as to like the criteria or like why characters look certain ways at certain times but if I'm wrong maybe maybe there's a time when all of these judgments just look normal. So he does go to work at Osborne. we see a uh, Kamala still working there. Uh, and we we actually
0: see that Kamala has Captain Marvel there as her progenitor judge, which kind of matches up, which we saw before. But we know in Judgment Day number four, that clearly comes before this in the timeline, she got her thumbs up from Captain Marvel, right? We had one panel where we were told that, oh, she it was a temptation thing where you get to join a team of superheroes even bigger than these team of superheroes. And she turns it down and that's how she gets the thumbs up. But in Super in Spider-Man, here we see Captain Marvel still staring creepily at her, and she's trying to she's trying to win points by being nice to, to Spidey too. So I like that it wasn't just a one time thing. We saw her hanging out at Osborne. I I think having her show up to be a you know a side character in in Spider-Man's book as well as doing her own thing could be really cool. But they don't really yeah. So I'm 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 hopeful because of that. But the scene itself doesn't do much. But uh when Norman comes in again, the progenitor here I'm going to say this again, so inconsistent because the progenitor is in the form of Gwen, but it's not Gwen, but yet when Norman Osborne comes in, when Gwen janitor the Gwen progenitor looks looks scared now, of course, Gwen would be scared of the guy who who murdered her, killed her, but it's not her, so is this the progenitor putting on an act to see how Peter will react? That's the only explanation I can come up with, but I don't I don't know that it works. So Peter gets very angry at Norman, wants him to leave, being protective of this fake Gwen, which of course they'd be protective of the real Gwen, but it's not. Uh yeah. So kind of kind of it feels like it should be emotional, but when you think about it, it doesn't make sense. And then we get our finale up on the roof, where we finally get uh Gwen progenitors speaking. And it's in the voice of the progenitor. We get our, you know red bubbles. It's not the red boxes, but it is the red bubble. So it's clearly a progenitor voice. And yeah, I see your heart, Peter Parker. It's full open and alive. It shines brightly. So hey, thumbs up, my buddy. And not just a thumbs up, he gets a special bonus gift that no one else has gotten. So Ruben, why don't you tell us about, about Peter Parker's special bonus gift from Gwen Janitor?
1: Yeah. So I was pretty, I don't know if I was I was okay with this issue, but it just felt like a throwaway issue. And then this moment here, I thought, whoa, this might actually be an important issue, like a big deal. So basically, the progenitor judge in the form of Gwen, I guess, brings actual Gwen into the body for some period of time. Yes. And they they get to have a kind of a catch-up moment where she's like, whoa, you're you're older. I've missed you. Um and they, I don't know, they just have some a touching moment, right, briefly before she she says she's missed him. He says he's missed her. And then... And for a moment there, you think, oh, is is she back, back? Yeah, yeah. That's where I was like, holy crap, this is a big issue. Yeah. like But that and feeling it, lasts about half a page. Yeah, yeah. And it was, exactly. to me, very, very, very disappointing, right? Because we've had this mystery of, you know, what's going on between Peter and MJ. And with a big change like this, I actually could have even tolerated that mystery being you know, drug out for even longer. Because I'd be like, oh, this is a great dynamic, right? Like, there's something going on with the MJ-Peter relationship. But also now we've got Gwen back in his life. You know, which side are you on, Team Gwen or Team MJ? And I actually, I'm sure that would have enraged the fan base, but also it would have been perfect for just a great bit of discussion about, like, you know, which which paramour should he ultimately end up with.
0: Right, especially if he's going to be on the outs kind of with MJ having Gwen back around living would be quite dramatic.
1: Yeah, because you could have gone down the road of like, hey, their relationship is getting back together. And then suddenly, maybe something happens where MJ starts getting interested in him again. And then you would have had the the conflict of which one should he end up with. Right. Of, Of course, this Gwen is still basically a teenager. So that would have been kind of creepy to deal with. So, maybe it's better that it didn't actually go that way. <laughs> I assume that they were college age, right? Like, didn't they meet in college? He's not that. He's what, like 21, 22? I don't, I don't know how old he is now. Yeah. So, I think, again, that was very touching, but
0: it also seems very calculated. Yeah. And I'm, I, I guess maybe that's just my skeptical side not wanting to be, not wanting to fall for the trick. And it feels kind of like a trick. And we do see that the ending, very, very ending bit t- tag was also kind of cool. We see Norman Saw. That Gwen showed up, so I guess when Gwen Janitor became actual Gwen, she became physically there, and, and Norman could see it, and we see the very last panel, his progenitor judge is also Gwen with much more mean looking eyes you now red both two red glowing eyes kind of chin tilted
1: down, staring at him and do you think that Norman has seen her yet in here? Yeah, I think so, because it's kind of in one of the scenes he's sort of looking over his his shoulder. Looking to the left, I I think that's him. Kind of like I, I don't know. It, it, it's a weird look. Like it looks like he's looking at something. Right. It's a a, a bombshell drop that again
0: they don't want to have to explain. So obviously, is oh, Gwen is also his judge. So I don't know if this is happening at the same time as Peter's. If the Gwen janitor was done with Peter, now going to Norman. But as far as a like a a big final whoa moment that doesn't actually have to be carried through anywhere. It was pretty good.
1: Yeah. And the facial expressions also sort of indicate like the demon is still inside him, right? Like the, the goblin anger is still there. And then he sort of like composes himself again. He's still not perfectly in control of himself. That's a good point. So yeah, that's important to know.
0: So that was Amazing Spider-Man number 10. The art was definitely a highlight. You know, once you got used to it, it looked different. So I can see some people who just say, that's not my Peter Parker. You're not going to like it. But if you can kind of get past it looks different,
1: I think you'll enjoy that. So, what what did you think of this story overall? Evan, for me, I, I, I yeah, I don't hate reading this issue. It was satisfying. Um, good interpersonal moments, but ultimately, don't think it's necessary to the overall spider yeah, I, I think Zeb Man Wells
0: was handed a, a fairly difficult task of, you know, tell this story, but don't affect anything. And I think it's kind of an annoying task to, be, task to be given, but I think he did a pretty good job on it. I think the art brings it up a notch. Oh, I'm going to go all the way to a a 7.5. I thought it was was pretty good. Again, it doesn't need to exist, but as far as hitting the mark for what it was assigned to do, even though it doesn't need to happen, it did what it needed to do.
1: What's going to disappoint me is this will probably never be mentioned in ASM ever again. And I always hate that, right? Like If you're dead, anything, any person that's important in your life shows back up, you'd at least think about it a few more times, right? Like What the heck, right? How did that happen? But I'm sure we will not see this reference to an issue 11 or 12. or Right. You know, he's anytime. not going
0: to talk to MJ and say, you know, by the way, remember that crazy thing that happened a couple of days ago? Who was your judge, by the way? Mine was a dead teenager.
1: <laughs> You're making me feel like a creep. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that was ASM number 10. So those are the only two tie-in books to the event this week. But X-Men number 15 also came out, uh, written by... Jerry Duggan, art by Joshua Cassara, and it's called, uh, well, the the title of the story should have been For the Children Who Have Everything, but it's actually called Collapse Theory. And we are back to the Children of the Vault, who I know are some of your favorites, Ruben. So, to remind us, for those of us who forget way back when, uh, who the heck
1: these Children of the Vault are. Yeah. So, I love the Children of the Vault, Um, and I don't think they are featured in too many issues, so you could actually go back and read all of them. Um, They popped up, Sometime in like the mid two thousands, in Mike Carey's run of the X Men, and basically the idea is that these are, um, I guess, not really identified, but somewhere, (laughs) somewhere in South America, um, the products of the scientists in the seventies that thought that you could basically evolve uh, humanity at an accelerated rate and kind of create a safety net for kind of inevitable global. Um, environmental collapse. So their view is like, hey, humanity is like on a collision course to like destroy itself through just wrecking the environment. And so we're going to create a more advanced version of humanity in this like time adjusted environment. And then with the vault, quote unquote. And then, you know, when apocalypse happens and the earth needs to be repopulated, the vault will open and these children will come out and, you know, they will be evolved technologically so they can survive in this new wasteland and kind of keep keep the world going forward but during the um m day event so the kind of following of house m when uh scarlet witch kind of goes crazy and then yeah and then she like snaps her finger and like kills most of the mutants and there's like 180 some odd left um basically that energy event when she kind of messes everything up like triggers the vault to open so the, the children come out early and they're like oh we were you know it's supposed to come out once you know there was a global apocalypse but we came out early oops um and actually sabertooth discovers them because he was hired by one of the scientists that created the children who was feeling guilty about what they did to kill all the other scientists so then he goes and discovers them and then they're like well crap we've been discovered um so we're going to try to kill sabertooth and then the x men kind of discover them through that and then they decide that they basically are going to try to accelerate the human demise because they're the next thing, right? That's their idea. And then they somehow get tangled up in the Krakoan era because we saw them. Yeah. So, so basically X,
0: it was, it was X-Force they were in, right?
1: Yeah. So, so 2004, 2006, remember they first show up, they, they have this big fight. Then they fake their death with the idea of um, when they die, they're going to be forgotten about. Right. And so then they can like kind of advance their agenda without people knowing about them. And then as part of faking their death, they like relocate their base into um, Ecuador where the wild sentinels from the Morrison era kind of were set up. So they go into this abandoned sentinel workshop and kind of create a new vault inside there. And supposedly there's like a 3000 of them. Um, Yeah. So we've only ever seen like teams like five or six and they're roughly equivalent to like, you know, the Uber X-Men.
0: Yeah. And I guess the idea is that inside time passes so quickly. So that every time we see them, They've evolved like hundreds and thousands of years since the last time.
1: The first ones, like half of them, die, but then they show up again later in the future. And we learn that basically there's an AI that like powers the vault, and that it like it's just through genetic engineering bringing back these characters over and over again. And like you said, their their powers, you know, are kind of a, can be adjusted by the writer because they're not the ones that you last saw. What I find really interesting, and I feel like I'm just rambling at this point, (laughs) trying to sell you on how cool these characters are. What I think is really cool about them is, you know, typically we get the X-Men presented as, you know, the next evolutionary link in humanity, right? And they're used to being like, well, especially like Magneto, right? Think of how many times he's like, you know, we're Homo Superior, we're the next link, and you, humanity, are like outdated, you know, genetic, um, you know. Leftovers (laughs) Leftovers <laughs> of a bygone era, and you're just going to eventually die out. That to the children of the this is the same thing, right? Like they are actually the next evolutionary leap, and mutants are really Which the ones. It works that... really
0: well in the Krokon era because it's again, it's all about thinking in this this far powers of X kind of future. Who is going to win the Earth? Is it going to be the mutants? Is it going to be the humans who become post humans? Is it going to be the machines? Is it going to be space aliens? Or here's—is it going to be these children of the vault who were created to, you know, to win in the long run? So
1: they do kind of fit in well. So they've been a, a threat, kind of lurking on the fringes. Yeah, Hickman dealt with them. They basically popped out of the vault, and people chased one of them around because I guess you can't really get into the vault; it's sealed shut. And um anyways, they find a way. the The X Men find a way to get in, but because of the time problem, uh they can only send certain people in there, right? right? Cause and when that's when we
0: saw that. Uh, it was Pro- Proteus and Laura, Wolverine, and uh, is it who's, who's stuck in there now? There's somebody still stuck in there. Oh Darwin?
1: Darwin, yeah. So it's Darwin, Sink, and- um, Sink, right, not Proteus. Yes. Yeah, Sink. And this is where Sink
0: and uh, Laura had a long relationship in there because time yes. passes so quickly, but yeah. he remembers it because he actually came out alive. She yeah, they doesn't escape remember it and- because she died. Correct. And she was reborn. Which is again a kind of a cool tragic romance kind of thing, where your girlfriend doesn't remember the the, the centuries you spent together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's sad and I think and funny. they yeah.
1: the AI captured Darwin, whose power is basically to evolve um, different capabilities to fit whatever environment he's in. And they realized that they could get his DNA and like merge it with the children to create like the next generation of children that are even right. fits more very impossible. well
0: in the, with their shtick evolution. So we saw back in the Hellfire Gala issue, when they elected slash selected their new team, uh, Cyclops chose Forge. And in that moment, Forge was really surprised, wasn't too thrilled with it, it seemed, and had this psychic conversation with uh, Xavier saying, hey, don't worry. Uh, Charles says, oh, does this affect Project Black Box, which we had never heard of before. And Forge says, I'm not going to let an effect do that. I'll do whatever I have to do. Uh, And in this issue, we see what that was. And there's a big twist on the issue. So if you want to just read it, we both liked it. We think you should read it. We can't talk about it without spoiling the hell out of it. So just go read it. Uh, But to spoil the hell out of it, we see that in the opening scene, it seems like Project Black Box was this gun to shoot a tiny black hole into the vault as soon as it opens. And we see Cyclops there and Forge tells him that's what we're doing. And then the door opens and the gun kind of fires, but doesn't really work, or at least on the inside, it gave them a rough time. But on the inside, all this time passed and they won, they defeated it. And then the children come out and beat everybody up. And then we see them take over Krakoa. And this is where you realize this is not actually happening, because we just saw. Krakoa got taken over like a week ago in another book. And then we see they take over the entire world and they kill a Ghost Rider and they kill the Fantastic Four and they kill the Avengers, and humanity's last stand is at uh, Latveria, and the last one to die is Doom. And it's all kind of cool, but really quickly realize, oh, this this is not really happening. So we find out what is really happening in a scene between, uh, we flash back to Forge and Xavier out having a drink under the Northern Lights, and we see the genesis of Project Black Box. And we also get a nice little retcon here. Professor Xavier is not really supposed to have telekinetic powers. He does the mind stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah but yeah, it's yeah. Gene who's supposed to be able to like physically move things around. And sometimes in the past, he's shown to have like minor turn a switch on kind of powers. And I think those are mostly mistakes, or at least nobody paid attention to him. But then in the recent Inferno number no. four, he used some major telekinesis Omega Sen- Sentinel yep. and Nimrod, that big fight with him and Magneto against those two huge telekinetic powers. And people were like, especially Chris on on this very program was pointing out to me, you know,
1: he's not supposed
0: to have telekinetic (laughs) powers. Oops. So here they have a a toast and uh, Borg says, hey, by the way, Charles, your telekinesis is stronger. And Charles says, oh yeah, stronger after resurrection. Yep, absolutely. That's certainly what it's always been ever since resurrection. They've had these telekinesis powers. So, okay. They kind of retroactively make that work. That's fine. But now we find out the real Project Black Box is not the Black Hole Gun. It's like a hollow deck put around the vault. And it's a very cool-looking uh, splash page here where it's very Krokoan techno-organic, red and green and
1: tendrily all around it. Let them think they've achieved their endgame. So all that killing of everything and taking over the world and the universe happens, but it all happens within their virtual... Black Mercy Box area. The whole first part was
0: Forge narrating to Cyclops what the children of the vault think happened because they're inside. And so Forge is going to go in because suddenly it's important to rescue Darwin. I don't know why. Now, maybe because the it opened back up and they are out and maybe that's they think is the opportunity. So he puts on a, for Cohen, kind of suit, very reminiscent of the, the blasty thing that Domino has that he made. Uh, there's a kind of obligatory fight scene where we get reminded that, oh, the other X-Men are still here too. They're a brand new team, so there's these guardians outside the dome, so they have to fight those guardians to let Forge kind of slip inside. And on the inside, we see uh, various children of the vault in these pods that really are straight out of uh, For the Man Who Has Everything, that Superman story with the the Black Mercy. Uh, who who wrote that? It's uh oh, one of the big names wrote that. It's definitely the Black Mercy, though. Just the exact same story. The same thing, except you know we
1: want these are the bad guys stuck in there, so we're supposed to be the good guys trapping them in their own. Yeah, personal. I mean, they've been morally ambiguous for like the last five years, so (laughs) they remain morally ambiguous. Including Forge, who then we find out has, I guess, skin grafted version of Caliban, who's another, he's a Morlock that. Has the ability this to find other super, mutants. Super, super strange. So, first he just goes into the dome, still outside the vault,
0: and sees the children in their, their little Black Mercy pods or their uh, uh, spinal tap pods, if you've seen that movie. Very similar to that. But when he goes into the actual vault, he drops his camouflage, and we see he's wearing a big X on his chest that now wakes up, and it's Caliban. Yeah. So, Caliban, like you say, he's a Morlock. He has powers of finding other mutants. Which, okay, that makes sense. If you're looking to try to rescue a mutant, having him be your partner would be good. But he says, it's just his his face stuck on Forge's chest. Looks totally weird. Yeah, I'm not sure why you couldn't just have him be there with you. I don't know. He doesn't seem to want to come along either. He was Shanghai'd. He says, yeah. the last thing I remember, I was having a drink with you at the Red Lagoon,
1: and now I can't feel my body, because, buddy, you ain't got one. You're just a face. They were on drinking terms, right? You're, you're there through your drinking, buddy. seriously, he wouldn't have just gone with you if you'd said, hey, put on the suit and help me find this guy? And as, uh, as Forge enters the vault, we see he is being observed. And who do you think is observing him here? Because we don't get a great look at it. I, I'm guessing this is Darwin, but... Maybe it's uh, it could be a child that's been kind of enhanced Yeah, it's with kind of own. this
0: gloopy, maybe liquid metal, maybe transparent if you look at the hand.
1: So, maybe something along those lines. Sang- Sangri is one of the um, children and he's like a water-based First. character. Yes.
0: Serafina is one of the children who looked kind of like this with liquid metal. So, I think it is going to be one of the children of the vault who didn't get caught up in the Black Mercy. So, I, this is going to be someone following him. Probably- probably not with any uh good it's not gonna end well no i'm sure no (laughs) but yeah this was a pretty good story so tell me what did you think of this story
1: yeah i gave this an eight five um okay and i'm probably overselling it but in general i just i enjoy these types of um stories that kind of continue a long long-standing development of you know characters and i thought you know the black hole gun thing was cool the idea was cool like because i'm always curious how do you fight these guys? And. I do like I, I do like this as a ongoing adversary for the Greco era, right? Because it's hard when all of the enemies that you normally deal with are now your buddies. Like, who do you fight? Um, and this is a good alternative to Orcus, which sometimes seems played out. And I have been saying for a long time, like, these guys would fight Orcus. They're not going to be aligned with them. And I think this is starting to show that that's true, that they're a third faction.
0: Yeah, it, it makes the world seem a little more complex, a little more complicated, a little more rough rough edges. Oh, we thought, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? It's not so much this side and that side. It's something kind of crazy off in the corner. And it is nice to see it picked up back again. Uh, I'm hoping that we get Forge's character kind of fleshed out a bit because yeah. he's just been kind of a, a shallow dude bro. Exactly. At least he wasn't a bro. Maybe that's another reason I like this more. If we see maybe why he's been acting like that and we see another side to his character, that could be fantastic. I think the timing of the issue is not great because it's kind of similar to what we saw happen in one of the Judgment Day books where, oh, this big attack failed or and it blew up the whole world. But actually, no, it didn't really do that. It was just a trick the whole time. So to play that same trick again so quickly after made it fall a little flatter than it could have. But on its own merits, it's a pretty good story. I enjoyed it. I'd give it an 8 out of 10. I'm not as As much into the children as you are, but I thought it was well done.
1: Yeah, that's still solid, right? And we've been saying, like, X Men (laughs) core book needs a story that is interesting, that holds people's attention. And they've just not done that recently. This, for me, holds my attention, right? And I would be happy to see, you know, this show up or next issue or even, you know, sometime in the next 12 issues, just a continuation of this conflict with the children. Well, we see that the next issue wasn't going to be about Forge, and we
0: see him. In, in a little preview. So, the next X Men issue is going to continue this. And we don't know when this
1: happens relative to Judgment Day. It, it must be afterwards, right? I guess. It, it has to be afterwards. I, the only, you know, the timing issue for me is less about seeing the, you know, fake out on everything getting destroyed and more on this really being interesting to me and sort of making me be ready to be done with the event, which is not what you really want, right? Like, also, we, we know intellectually
0: that they have to push the big red undo button as part of this event, right? Because everybody died five times. So something's got to be done to just undo all that. So we see in this issue is afterwards, yeah, everything is completely back to status quo normal. We don't see any major fallout. We, well, we don't really see Krakoa. So it is possible, you know, deviants are hanging out there or something, but things seem pretty much back back to the status quo ante in X-Men, which we kind of knew was going to happen, but Jack, we see that in our face is maybe a little disappointed.
1: And nobody dies and gets resurrected. That's the one thing I'm really curious to oh, see. Is, okay. that, is that the real Interesting. fallout of Judgment Day? I like
0: that. That's a good point. Thank you for bringing that up. Okay, so yeah, maybe there are some some major changes coming. It hasn't completely shut the door on that. But uh, speaking of shutting the door, it is, it is getting near the time we're going to shut the door on this episode of the podcast. Uh, but first, I know Ruben has some recommended reading for all of you.
1: Yeah, so I would go back in if you're at all interested in the Children of the Vaults read the first appearance it's six issues it runs somewhere between 2006 and 2004 and it's x-men 188 through 193 and that'll basically show you their their first appearance you get a little bit more insight into each character's power set and kind of what they're about and how they were formed and i think a lot of that gets glossed over now that we just kind of see them and they just Mm -hmm. appear to do whatever they do but it's very clear in that issue like this character has, you know, this kind of domain of powers. and That sounds good. And that will definitely be available in Marvel
0: Unlimited. So easy access there. So that's our recommended reading. Uh, coming next week, we have a few books. We have X-Men Red number seven, where is this going to be moving the story forward? Or are we just going to be revisiting the death of Magneto again in more detail? We'll have to wait and see. Uh, we have the X-Men number one by Kieran Gillen which I'm pretty sure we're just going to continue the Strikeforce story. Gene uh, Gray's on the cover. I hope we're not getting an of-the-mind story of Gene Grey, just just like the one we saw about Tony Stark. We'll find out. There's also Axe Star Fox number one, one shot by Kieran Gillen, which that was announced very late. So it, it can't be all that
1: vital to the ongoing story, but I'm curious to see what, what Star Fox's deal is. I so- think that one's going to be the more interesting one, because I think that one will tell us what the deals are that he's been trying to make. At least that's that's my hope, right? Because he was going around wheeling and dealing with everybody. And finally,
0: we have Death to the Mutants number three, the third and final issue in that little miniseries, also by Kieran Gillen. So we have three Kieran Gillen books, one Al Ewing book. He was a, Gillen was a really busy guy there for a, a while writing all these books. So at least these writers are very much into the main part of the story. So they should be relevant, I hope. So could be good. Now, the week after that is going to be packed with nonsense, but we'll worry about that when we get to it. And uh, next week, we'll talk about those issues and and any other X-Men stuff that comes up and probably have a little update for you on Sins of Sinister. So thank you, Ruben, once again, and we will see you next time.